You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you here today. Uh, Let me tell you, the early service is catching up with you guys. Uh, It was a great group in the early service today, Um, and that's good to see. Uh, Good to see you. I hope that you've had a great week. Uh, I have. You should note that I've showed some restraint today. I'm not wearing any ranger gear. Okay, I have a big foam number one finger over my office that I thought about wearing the whole time I preached today so I could point at you with my... Number one finger, but I chose not to do that. Um, Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I've had 51 years (laughs) of deferred hope, okay? 51 years, just, uh, but a desire, uh, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, that verse didn't have anything to do with baseball, but it works for me. It's morning, okay? Just so you know. Um, Yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun, and I'm just so thankful. I mean, I would truthfully say this. God has many times overused sports um, in my sanctification process, both as a player, as a coach, um, as a parent, uh, and as a fan. And so, and I will just say this. The grace of God is never more on display than on the Sunday that the Cowboys play the Eagles. (laughs) Because um, the Eagles, whatever, you know, um, because, you know, like, we have some misguided Eagle fans here today, okay? Um, and so, um, but at the end of the day, we can all be brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That's because of the grace of God. Uh, we can worship together. We can, all those things. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just fun. And I, I'm thankful for those little common graces and the fun we get to have with such things. I am also thankful that none of those things are ultimate. Uh, otherwise, I truly would have experienced a lack of hope for 51 years, and that has not been the case. I've been disappointed a few times. Um, I'm still getting over 2011, but it, I'm, it's, I'm doing better now, okay? So anyway, a couple of things real quickly. Next Sunday evening, uh, we have our regular quarterly members meeting. Uh, that will be at 6 o'clock right here in the FLC. Before that, at 5.15, is actually something more important, and that is our monthly prayer gathering. So let me invite you to be here and be a part of that. Uh, this is an especially important uh, quarterly members meeting. It's when we approve uh, our budget for the coming year, for 2024. And just know that those people who are serving you uh, by serving on uh, the budget and finance team have got their work cut out for them this year. Uh, there's a, a lot involved in making a move, assuming a new uh, property, new facility, all of those things. And so they're doing their best to pull things together and uh, and I'll just tell you this, I was reminded of a conversation that I shared a number of years ago. Some of you have been here long enough to know the name Jack Strickland, right? Okay, even if you were not a part of this church, maybe you know Jack Strickland as the pharmacist and city drug and all of that. So there was a time when Jack Strickland was a treasurer here in the church, and he told me, he said, I can remember what a big deal it was when the church's budget went over $100,000. And you can imagine in that time, that was significant. The coming budget will be 10 times that y'all. Okay, so wrap your brain around that. Uh, I know that that says a lot about, uh, you know, what the economy has done over the years and all that, but more than that, it talks of God's faithfulness and God's provision through the years, and there's always uh, faith involved as we set a budget and all those things, so 
uh, I want to encourage you to be faithful in your giving, faithful in your praying, and all of that. Also, circle the date January 21st. Okay, I say that with a little bit of hesitation because in the building program, there are always unknowns. But that is the date that we have circled, uh, Lord willing, to have our first service on Colin McKinney Parkway. So, yeah, praise the Lord for that. Um, yeah. Uh, still a lot to be done over there. Uh, one of the reasons that we kind of push things out just a tad is because of the announcement you heard earlier about the ladies' retreat uh, on the weekend before that. The Pro Tour Center had long been reserved, couldn't change that and everything, so we felt it best to kind of shift that uh, to the 21st. And so... Uh, there is still plenty to be done, but uh, you'll be seeing an official, official announcement about that as it gets closer, and we are even more sure uh, that that date is going to work for us. And so be in prayer for the Lionheart team. Uh, the plans are still in place for uh, Lionheart to be open on January 2. And so, uh, yeah, so be in prayer for that as well. A lot of exciting things happening uh, in the life of First Baptist Van Alstein. So thankful to be a part of that. Well, we're in John chapter 9 this morning. Let's go ahead and turn there in our Bibles, John chapter 9. The last several weeks, we've been in this ninth chapter of John's gospel, and what we've been seeing is really the testimony and the story uh, of one individual. We're not given his name. Uh, We just know him as the man born blind, and we've seen his story kind of uh, from the moment of his physical healing uh, all the way through to this morning where we're going to see his spiritual sight. Uh, given. And so what an exciting thing. One of the things that I love most about ministry, and I sometimes get asked that question, what do you love most about ministry? What is it that lights your fire, so to speak? And I I always respond the same way. I always say it's seeing people get it, get it for the first time, seeing people transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, coming to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us in his substitutionary death, the atonement, and and all that that means, and seeing lives transformed uh, by the amazing grace of God and the power of the gospel. Uh, And it's so clear uh, that that is not something that a human being can manufacture. Uh, I know as a seminary student, you're young in ministry, and you're thinking, man, I've got to preach in such a way that people will just be compelled to come to faith in Christ, and I've got to deliver the sermon in such a a way and in such a powerful way, you know, all those sorts of things. Scripture says God uses the foolishness of preaching, okay? And so it's just amazing to me that God chooses to use us, not just me, not just those of us who are vocational in ministry and all that. God uses us as broken, sinful human beings to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is amazing, y'all. Uh, And to think that God can use uh, us in our weakness and our limited understanding and all those things to bring people to himself. It's his work. Uh, It's his work. And uh, so I I love hearing people's testimony, their story. Uh, And often God is gracious enough to allow me to be a small part of that story. Um, And so I, I just wondered this morning, what is your story? I mean, if we were all preparing to go on a missions trip together and, and you knew that you were going to have to share your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, what would you share? What would that look like? Where would you start? What, what, what parts would you share? I mean, you, you clearly can't share everything that God maybe has done over the years in your life. So what are the high points maybe, the, the, the places where God was really working in your life the most? And, and I recognize that everybody's story may not be quite as dramatic as the guy here in John chapter 9. It was one of the things that I struggled with because I, I trusted Christ as my Savior when I was eight years old. 
And I can remember back in that day, it was much more common for special guests to come to your church and to share their testimony. And it would be an amazing testimony. I mean, there were people that are like, you know, the, the reason they came, the reason they were invited is because their story was so amazing, you know. Like people who had, had spent, you know, years uh, in crime and drug addiction and all sorts of things. And had been brought out of that by the grace of God. And there was a time where I thought, man, my testimony is so boring. Like I was saved at the age of eight, you know, and yet I, I came to understand that I was as lost and as spiritually blind as the person who was saved out of, out, out of desperation and sinful and all the things that we normally associate with a sinful lifestyle. Uh, my story just as amazing. And so is your story really his story? I hope it is. And so let's bear that in mind as we look at these last few verses of John chapter 9 this morning. We pick it up in verse 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That is the man who was born blind, who'd been healed. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38 is so key. It says, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, let's pause and marinate in that verse for just a moment because what we have seen is a guy who early on said, who healed you? He was asked that question, remember? And he said, the man called Jesus. That's all he knew him as, the man called Jesus. Now he is is professing his faith in Jesus. Lord, he says, I believe. That's the transformation power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees uh, near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So I want us to see in these final few verses, as we wrap up John chapter 9, I want us to see how the life and ministry of Jesus is, is essentially a living parable of sorts. And I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus seeks and finds. Scripture makes it clear that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so the few opening words of this closing section of John chapter 9 tell us so much about the character of Jesus. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. So even though things were very tense at this point in the narrative with the Jewish authorities and all that, Jesus' earthly life certainly at risk, he stuck around to find out what would happen to the man that he healed. And of course, he knew what was going to happen. And once it did, he sought out the man and found him. Scripture tells us Jesus heard that he'd been put out. And we'd already seen that language last week with his parents being called in to give witness, uh, give testimony, essentially. And remember, they were were a bit fearful as to what what they would share because they knew that it had already been determined if anyone, uh, you know, professes any kind of faith in Jesus as the Messiah, they would be put out of the synagogue. Well, that is indeed what happened with this guy, all right? So he had been put out. So the fact that Jesus waited until he'd heard that the man had been cast out of the synagogue before he sought the man, again, tells us so much. Jesus cares about this man's salvation, not just his physical sight. So Jesus knew that the man was not ready for salvation earlier, but he also knew that he would be ready now. 
Jesus took a risk, humanly speaking, to stick around Jerusalem, wait for the right time to approach the man, speak to him of faith, and bring him to salvation. So these truths show us Jesus' concern, not only for this man, but for us as well. For humanity, when we needed salvation, Jesus timed his approaches to us just right. And maybe uh, even now, you can sit there for a moment and you can think back to when you first came to understand the gospel. Or you were first introduced to the gospel. Maybe for you, it it came when you were really young and you were challenged to memorize John 3.16. And you were asking yourself, even as you memorize those words, what, what exactly does that mean? You know what that meant. He's talking about Jesus coming and dying for us and eternal life and all those things. And so I I don't know what your faith journey may have looked like, but but, but what what was that? Many of us didn't come to faith the first time we heard of him or the first time we even heard the gospel, for example. We needed to experience maybe some rejection or some hardship or some disappointment before we were ready to place our faith in Jesus. I, I probably shared before the testimony of a guy named Greg Brawley. Uh, Greg Bali was a guy in South Texas, worked as a Border Patrol agent, um, had lived a, a really interesting life. Uh, I was leaving the office one day to go run a couple of errands in Corpus Christi. We were in South Texas. And Greg Brawley comes walking up in his uniform and says, I got to talk to a pastor. And tears were streaming down his face. And I said, well, you've caught me at just the right time. I said, come on in. Let's go in. We sat in my office. And he began to tell me uh, some of the things that was happening in his life. And it was clear the events that were going on in his life at that moment, God was using in a profound way to draw him to himself. Greg Brawley, at that point, had never heard me preach a sermon. But he was ready. You know why he was ready? Because the Holy Spirit was working in his heart, was working in his life. And I'll never forget it. It's as clear as I'm standing before you today. I I shared salvation with him. I shared scripture with him and what it looks like to place your faith and trust in Christ. And he came and stood beside me at my desk as he read those words out of my Bible with big tears dropping on my Bible. And he trusted Christ that day in my office. It wasn't because I preached a great sermon and he was just so compelled by my sermon that he came to faith in Jesus. God was doing some stuff in this guy's life. And maybe that, that sounds a lot like your story. Maybe there were some just absolute failures back there along the way. Maybe it was a financial collapse. Maybe it was a a relationship failure or any number of things. But but it's amazing how God is always working in these things. This man needed to be confronted, put on trial, expelled from his community of faith, we might say, a process that forced him to think about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for him. So these truths also show us how we're to love others. And as I said last week, I said many of us have people in our lives whom we wish desperately would come to faith in Jesus. Maybe you've been praying for that person. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker, a neighbor. Maybe we've seen God working in their lives, but they're still blind to the truth of the gospel. Maybe we've been praying for them and we've seen some small movement, it would seem, or maybe a a little glimmer of hope or a, a bit of interest in the things of God. Nothing significant, nothing indicating saving faith just yet. We need to keep praying and keep sharing and keep trusting God and be patient to wait for God to work in his time. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He is ultimately the one who seeks and who saves. 
the one who finds us, brings us to himself. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet come to faith in Jesus, could this be the time, even today, even today, maybe you've sat through sermons much like this, and you continue to just push it to the back of your mind or dismiss uh, the thought that maybe, maybe, maybe you need a Savior. Could Jesus be seeking you, speaking to you through the worship service? And we just sang three gospel-saturated songs. Talking about the life that we live is not because of anything we've done. It's his righteousness. That's why he's our cornerstone. Maybe through the words of the text today. I want you to notice Jesus found him. Jesus found him. And I know we sometimes say, you know, it was in such and such time, such and such month, such and such date, I found Jesus. And I understand what we mean when we say that. But I think it's more theologically accurate to say that Jesus found him. Once Jesus sets out to find the man, he succeeds and indeed finds him. This reminds us of the sovereign and effectual power of God's grace. When God sets out to save someone, he does it. He finds us wherever we are, brings us to himself. And I have to wonder, are you running from God or trying to hide from him? One great preacher of old used to refer to the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven. Maybe maybe you're here today and it's like God's been hot on your trail, man. It's like God's been orchestrating things in your life and doing things in a way and and put you in places where you've been in strategic conversations and you just have this strong sense that, that God's drawing you to himself. But maybe up to now you've been resistant to that. So if God has claimed you for his own, he's seeking you out for salvation, you won't be able to run and hide from him. David spent part of his life, the psalmist David, running from God. The years he spent among the Philistines in in 2 Samuel there, or 1 Samuel chapters 27 through 29. Later, he reflected on the constant and inescapable presence of God in his life. And he wrote it uh, in Psalm 139. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even in darkness, even the darkness is not dark with you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. You can't outrun God. You can't. I want you to notice secondly in our narrative here, Jesus speaks and saves. Once Jesus seeks and finds the man that he's healed, he speaks to him and saves him. The text says here, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So Jesus asked him the most important question. Now, we've all asked and answered some pretty important questions, right? That was in January of 1989 that I asked what I thought was a really important question. I asked my my girlfriend at that time, who's now been my wife for 34 years, will you marry me? That's a pretty important question, right? (laughs) A little more important than, you know, what's the weather forecast for this afternoon? And I would like to think that the the answer she gave me was pretty important in her eyes, right? I'm going to tell you something. There's no more important question than this one. No more important question than this one. Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Most important question because it is all that is required for salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't ask him whether he had used his newfound sight to read the scrolls, to read God's word, uh, whether he had done enough good works to pay God back for his healing. You see, our pride wants us to think that we can earn our salvation somehow. We may be compelled to think, yeah, it's Jesus, but it's also Jesus plus my best efforts. I've got to be able to earn this thing. And even if we know that Jesus has died for our sins, we can't save ourselves. We still somehow want to believe that we must have work to do or maybe we could somehow begin to pay God back for our salvation. The Bible makes it crystal clear. God will not be a debtor to anyone. God will not be a debtor to anyone. We don't earn it. We can't repay God for it. So Jesus asked the man what was needed. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And then Jesus helped him understand. Now the man's initial response tells us that he still didn't fully understand who Jesus was talking about. Now I think he probably would have known two things clearly enough. That Son of Man was a title for the Messiah. That it was Jesus, the man who had healed him, who was talking to him. But he probably was not yet sure that Jesus was the Son of Man, the the, the Messiah. He knew Jesus was a prophet. He'd already expressed that, sent by God. Perhaps he thought that Jesus might even be an Elijah-type figure, uh, one whose coming would precede the coming of Messiah. And so the fact that Jesus asked him this question uh, in in, in third person uh, would, would indicate to us maybe a little bit of the reason why he wasn't fully understanding. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And so... Maybe Jesus is talking uh, about someone else is what maybe he, what he's thinking. So the man asks the most obvious question for clarification. He says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus tells him, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. There's not a more clear declaration of who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the long-awaited one than that right there. This response must have been especially powerful for a man who had spent his whole life blind and had only recently been given sight. One of the first uh, and most important figures that he sees with his eyes is the Messiah, the long-awaited one whom all the prophets longed to see and had not. And the man responded with saving faith. Once the healed man understands that Jesus is indeed the Son of Man, the long-awaited Messiah, he immediately responds with true saving faith. His saving faith marked by two key elements. 
a profession of faith and worship. A profession of faith and worship. Notice this confession. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. The man addresses Jesus as Lord. Do you realize that the earliest confession of faith in the church recorded in the New Testament was Jesus is Lord? Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, as you're awakened by the Holy Spirit. It's why we often say here, Jesus did not come simply to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. And it's the Holy Spirit that quickens us, the Bible says, makes alive. So the man's confession begins with the very first word, Lord, and then continues with, I believe. So as an answer to Jesus' earlier question, do you believe in the Son of Man? This man's response, I believe, doesn't mean I believe that you are the Son of Man, but rather I believe in you, Lord, as the Son of Man. That's a key distinction. You see, an eternity of difference stand between I believe that and I believe in. Someone said it this way, just because you know how to get to Oklahoma City doesn't mean you're in Oklahoma City. So just because you know the plan of salvation or you can articulate the gospel as factual information doesn't mean that you personally have embraced Jesus by faith. There are people that could tell you all day long, yeah, I know Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead and all that, but they've never themselves turned to faith in Jesus Christ. They think it's amazing what Jesus has done. Sure, they're fine with having some Jesus in their portfolio, but ultimately they think it's Jesus plus me. The scripture makes it clear that's not the case. So he says, Lord, I Believe, saving faith is not merely an an intellectual assent, an agreement to a statement of facts. It is trusting in, receiving, and resting upon Jesus alone for salvation. And then notice the response of worship. Man shows the first fruit of this newfound saving faith by worshiping Jesus. If you want to know whether your faith is a mere intellectual agreement, I believe that, or is true saving faith, that is, it, it, this is a vital indicator. Do you worship Jesus? Now, you might know the truth about Jesus. You might come to church. In fact, you might come to church regularly. You might read your Bible, and you might do it regularly. You might give money to the church, or you might give your time to the church. But do you worship Jesus? Do you adore him? Do you value him? Do you cherish him? Do you highly esteem him? Praising him from the heart with your lips and with your life. Do you worship him? This healed man worships Jesus. So his story of God's saving intervention in his life begins to, to, to bear fruit. And as thankful as he certainly was for the gift of his physical sight, now he has been given something infinitely more valuable, and that is eternal life. And a reconciled relationship with holy God. Do you know that salvation is what you most need from God? 
Now, I know if you're like me, there are days you get up and you're like, you know, all I need today is a cup of coffee and about a million bucks, right? That'd be nice, huh? There's nothing that you can have in this world that is more significant, more important than you having a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Not even a World Series championship. (laughs) Nothing. Are you looking for more material, physical blessings from him? Or do you see that you're standing before God, your eternal destiny are infinitely more important? Then I want you to notice, thirdly, Jesus clarifies and convicts. So having brought this once blind man to healing, forgiveness, salvation, Jesus now turns his attention to clarifying the truth about who he is and what he has come in the world to do. And in doing that, his words of clarification bring conviction to the Pharisees for their arrogant refusal uh, to see and respond to his light. Now, in this moment, I kind of suspect that they're eavesdropping, right? I mean, that, that's kind of what they do is they, you know, they're always wanting to, to, you know, to be there. Maybe they need to blow the whistle, you know, the pharisaical whistle, throw the pharisaical flag. Jesus surely is violating something again. But I want you to notice this kind of this paradigm between the blind and those who see. It's great spiritual truth here. Jesus clarifies his real mission in the world. He says, for judgment... I came into the world, into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that he came into this world for judgment? Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, you may be thinking of John 3. We've already been there in our study of John's gospel where it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with John 12, which will be there eventually. Uh, Verse 47, Jesus will say, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, uh, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So bearing those two verses in mind, did Jesus come to judge or not? It's a fair question. Did he come to save or condemn? He came to seek and to save the lost. We know that. And without his coming into the world, we would have no salvation. We would all be hopeless. Spiritually, we would all remain in the darkness of sin and under the sentence of condemnation. Yet the coming of the light of the world, Jesus, into the world, does bring judgment. Even as the light brings salvation. For some come to the light for salvation and some remain in the darkness of their sin. And yet it's interesting how Jesus expresses this truth here. He says that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, it becomes clearer when we consider how the Pharisees respond and how Jesus responds to them. So check this out. If you were blind, if you were blind, some of the Pharisees, it says in the text here, near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have guilt. You would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So what's going on here? These words from Jesus are very similar to his response to the religious leaders who were scandalized by the fact that he had called Matthew, a tax collector, 
to be one of his disciples and even went to Matthew's house where he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. How scandalous. We find that account in Matthew's gospel, chapter 9, where it says this, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There they are, blowing the whistle again, ready to throw a flag. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So is it the case that some people are really spiritually well and truly have no need of a physician? No, they're sick, but they don't think they're sick. Now, those of you who've been diagnosed with a chronic illness, maybe you can identify with this. I've shared enough of my story for you to know that uh, back when I was first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I was in denial. For some time, I've been showing all the classic symptoms constantly thirsty, up several times during the night, going to the bathroom, all the things, uh, unexplained weight loss, all the stuff. I didn't have to have the internet to know that those were classic symptoms of something wrong, but I was in denial. Let me tell you what my thought process was. I've been an athlete my whole life. I played sports all through high school, even in college. I've had thorough physicals. Surely they would have uncovered this in one of those thorough physicals, right? So I just kept walking in denial until I got so sick that I had to go to the hospital. It wasn't until I was laying on that gurney in the ER at the hospital in Clarksville, Texas, and had a doctor look me in the eye and say, you're a diabetic. And it still didn't sink in. I did not want to believe that I was sick. Now, how crazy would it have been for me to understand this diagnosis, for them to tell me, here's the good thing about your diagnosis. The prognosis is actually very good because there was a guy way back there who developed this thing called insulin. If you will take this insulin every day, even throughout the day, you can expect to live a long, full life. How stupid would it have been for me in that moment to go, I ain't doing no insulin In fact, they told me in the hospital that day, we can't let you out of here until you give yourself your first shot. And so I said, you better give it to me now because I ain't staying in here. I had to come to the realization that this was my reality. I had to have this to be made well, to be able to function, right? You realize how many people there are who are spiritually sick and will not admit it? There's self-delusion going on. They're thinking, but I'm better than most people. And and they bought this lie that it's just good people go to heaven. No, saved people go to heaven. (laughs) People who've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ go to heaven. And that's what they fail to understand. They're living in this denial. So Jesus responds, if you were blind, meaning if you knew how blind you were and were willing to acknowledge it, you would have no guilt. All their sins could be cleansed, all of their guilt removed, if only they knew and confessed their blindness. But now that you see, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Understand this. Your self-confidence, your self-righteousness is, in fact, your self-condemnation. 
That's what Jesus was telling them. Your self-confidence, your self-righteousness is your self-condemnation. You understand how powerful that is? So there are two questions that come to mind. Are you blind and are you willing to admit it? And do you believe? Do you believe? In so many ways, the single biggest problem that we face is ourselves. And the single biggest barrier keeping us from eternal life in Jesus is our pride. If we refuse to see our need, how will the offer of forgiveness and eternal life be attractive? How crazy would it have been for me to lay there in that emergency room and say, I'm not sick? Are you kidding me? When Jesus calls us to come to him for salvation, he calls us to lay down our lives and embrace his life instead. He calls us to surrender the pretend lordship that we often exercise over over our own lives and joyfully embrace him as Lord. Why would we do this if we think that we're just fine without him? Most people think they're basically good people. And so if there is a heaven, then they're certainly getting in because heaven is where good people go. And since they're good, why would they be left out? It's a kind of self-deluded, wishful thinking is what it is. Maybe really bad people need salvation and forgiveness, but I'm not a moral monster. I'm a decent, law-abiding, tax-paying, promise-keeping moral person. If that's what we think of ourselves, we are those who think we can see when in fact we cannot. We are those who think we are well when in fact we are not. And we are far from salvation. And I would say it this way, no one is further from salvation than the person who is leaning on their own self-righteousness, their own good deeds. We will never see that Jesus came for us. He comes for the blind, the needy, the poor, the lame, the outcast, the lost, the desperate, the condemned. For those who see rightly the state of their own hearts, his coming is the best news imaginable. Here is forgiveness, full and free. Here is freedom from the tyranny of our own sinful hearts. Here is reconciliation with holy God. Here is sight and health and eternal life in Jesus. So how do you see yourself? Are you blind? Are you blind to the reality that, like everyone else, All of humanity, the Bible makes it clear, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the light of the world? And have you confessed your faith in him? Are you worshiping him? These final few moments, let's bow our heads together if we could. I hope the thrust of this morning's message was crystal clear for you. You can be a good person. You can be much like the Pharisees of Jesus' day and be viewed in your peer circle, among your friends and family, as a religious elite. You go to church. You do good things. You're generally kind to others. 
Maybe you give money to charity. All sorts of stuff, good things. But if you have never yourself turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually blind. And what you need this morning is to have your eyes opened through faith in Jesus Christ. It's an understanding that you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't make enough New Year's resolutions and turn over enough new leaves and determine to behave better. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not lost on me that there are people who have attended church regularly, done all the things. You know the songs, you've you've memorized verses, but you yourself have never turned in faith to Jesus Christ. Could this be that day for you? I would love nothing more than to take God's word and share with you from the word of God how you can leave here today knowing that you are reconciled to holy God that your spiritual eyes have been opened, not because of anything that Mike Lovely can do for you. I'm just a person who once was blind, but now I see by the grace of God. I'm going to share with you how you can know that too. If your testimony today is one of faith in Jesus Christ, I hope that you have a worshipful heart. I'm not just talking about how you sing, how you express yourself in worship. I'm talking about how you live your life. Is your very life an offering of worship to the one who laid down his life for you? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the testimony of a nameless man in John chapter 9 who was born blind and given sight. More important than the physical sight he received, he received life, spiritual sight through faith in Jesus Christ. God, how we thank you today for the transforming power, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here today, much like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, relying on their own good deeds, their own good behavior, God, I pray that you open their eyes to see their need for you. As we all turn our eyes upon Jesus, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.